<clears throat> well, I have never been to Columbus before, or Ohio State University, so this is a learning experience for me. Uh oh, there's a movie too. Huh? Uh -oh. No more plausible than that, though. Uh, Congress is, uh, told uh, the Director of National Intelligence in the Department of Defense to do this thing called space posture review. Uh, you may have heard of nuclear posture reviews, which are a routine thing that occurs every four or five years. Uh, Congress was interested in uh, having these two major players in space do a space posture review uh, because space has changed a lot over the last uh, few years. Used to be a sanctuary. Back on my shuttle flight, I flew a military mission, and we, there was only two major players in space then, back in the mid-80s and before, uh, United States and Soviet Union. Uh, commercial world was just getting started. NASA uh, was doing civil uh, scientific space missions. But the two dominant, uh, the two dominant powers that influenced space activities were the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, we had a tacit agreement between those two superpowers that if you don't play, if you don't play around with our stuff, we won't play around with your stuff in space. That was too provocative because space uh, uh, at that juncture was a very stabilizing force. Space assets were a very stabilizing force. Prevented surprises. I worked for a, a three-star general once that always referred to the start of World War I as, as a, a strategic surprise. Uh, the nations that were uh, started in World War I in 1914 sort of backed their way into it because they never knew the intentions or the capabilities of their potential adversaries. Uh, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, both the United States and the Soviet Union developed things, space assets, that made our capabilities and intents, in, intentions a little more transparent. So they were stabilizing elements. Space assets were stabilizing elements. Uh, it's not that way anymore. Let me see if I can uh, get this cranked up. Hmm. Uh oh. Hmm. 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 Not that. Set up slideshow. Is that it? Bottom right, sir. Bottom right. Oh, there we go. That guy right there. Uh, thank you, Bill Gates. Um, so it's no longer a sanctuary. And what we have now is uh, a dramatic change in the uh, space environment. Uh, new players, new capabilities. And again, it's no longer... A, no longer any tacit agreements that we won't play with your stuff if you don't play with our stuff. Uh, now, instead of two major powers in space, 43 nations have space assets on orbit right now. Uh, during my space shuttle flight, 1985, there were 7,000 objects that the Air Force tracked in space, objects 10 centimeters or larger. 7,000 back in the mid-80s. Now it's over 20,000 objects that we keep track of. 1,100 active satellites on orbit right now. Commercial satellites, scientific satellites, Russian satellites, American satellites, French satellites. So it's, uh, <coughs> additionally, back in the uh, days of the Cold War, there were two nations that could uh, launch things into space, United States and Soviet Union. Now there are seven entities that launch routinely into space. U.S., Russia, Europe, uh, uh, Japan, China, uh, India, let me see the list here, Israel, uh, 
three more that want to join that space launch club, South Korea, North Korea, and Iran. So the access to space and use of space has broadened dramatically. And while that's been happening, U.S. military and our allies have become more dependent on space. The, uh, we fly UAVs. Our Predators, Global Hawks, are flown from the United States, even though the airplane is actually flying over Iraq or Afghanistan. But they're flown from the United States. Uh, intelligence data that they collect is analyzed in the United States and then sent back to the war zone. Uh, all that's done by satellite. We rely on blue force tracking nowadays uh, so that our commanders know where other U.S. and allied forces are in, in, the, in the war zone. General Kaler, commander of a Air Force Space Command, has said that without space, it's like a time machine. If you took away space assets from the U.S. military, we'd have to go back to fighting the way we did in World War II. With huge numbers of deployed Americans in harm's way, a huge logistic tail, and commensurate, uh, uh, commensurate uh, casualties. Let's look at uh, just simple, one simple Air Force mission uh, comparing that World War II era to today. Uh, strategic bombing of factories and railroad yards and such in World War II typically launched 1,000 B-17s or B-24s. The British could launch a 1,000 bomber attack also. Each one of those carried uh, somewhere between six or eight 500-pound bombs in order to destroy one target. You know, do the math. A thousand airplanes, ten people on each airplane, uh, six bombs inside each airplane. So the logistics and the forces required to take out that target were dramatic. Uh, in the war in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh, a flight of uh, uh, air-to-ground attack airplanes called F-4s, uh, we might take 34 of those F-4s, each one, again, carrying four uh, uh, 500 pound bombs or some, six 500 pound bombs to take out a single target. 34 airplanes, two people in each one, plus tankers, electronic warfare airplanes. <clears throat> Later on in the first Gulf War, a single F-117 uh, carried two 2,000 pound bombs and they could take out two targets. So we're going from 1,000 airplanes to take out one target to one airplane to take out two targets. Today, and we've demonstrated this down in Eglin, uh, a single B-2 can carry 80 500-pound bombs, and each one of those 80 bombs can be assigned a different target. And, it's in, it, uh, it attacks that target through GPS coordinates. And so now we have a single airplane uh, taking out 80 targets uh, instead of 1,000 airplanes that take out one. And so that's just a, a specific example, an Air Force example, of how space has dramatically uh, improved our warfighters' capabilities. Clearly, uh, uh, on the civil side of the world, commercial side of the world, uh, this is a little more obvious. Uh, weather satellites, your 6 p.m. your 6 p.m. weather forecast uh, comes from weather assets. Uh, people don't realize this, but your ATM machine doesn't talk through satellites; talks through cell towers. But the time that it marks on your little receipt and the time you take money out is determined from the GPS constellation. Uh, uh, farmers use GPS for precision farming, uh, surveying. Uh, I flew over here yesterday from Illinois in a Cirrus, and I have two GPS receivers that do my navigation for me. Uh, the FAA's next-gen air traffic control system will use GPS as its foundation. Obviously, science uh, for NASA and NOAA. Uh, Direct-to-home TV broadcast has revolutionized entertainment and advertising. So, uh, and I talked about Blue Force tracking a little bit earlier. The civil commercial equivalent of Blue Force tracking is, is in use right now on tracking cargo containers. 
uh, all, all across the world, both on land and on the sea. And so space has become part of our infrastructure, not just military, but a part of our critical infrastructure. And uh, the United States has a tendency to protect its critical infrastructure. The uh, June 28th, the President signed a new national space policy. And it is an outgrowth, the space policy is an outgrowth of the Space Posture Review. Space Posture Review coined the term that space is now a congested and contested place. And the space policy laid, uh, laid the foundation from a policy perspective, federal government policy perspective, on how the U.S. is going to respond to that uh, 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 contested and congested space. Let me be specific here. Uh, Again, the National Space Policy says, the United States considers the sustainability, stability, and free access to and use of space vital to its national interests. Buzzwords, vital to national interests. Typically, that means we will defend those national interests that are so vital to us. The United States will employ a variety of measures to help assure the use of space for all responsible parties and consistent with the inherent right of self-defense, deter others from interference, and defend our space systems, and contribute to the defense of allied space systems. So those are pretty daunting words to come out of a presidential policy. Um, our systems now will have to be designed for and, op and operated in a manner where they can uh, operate through and survive in this contested and congested environment. Uh, typically, and this is in the policy also, we will use deterrence to prevent our adversaries from, to discourage our adversaries from attacking uh, our space assets. Doesn't necessarily mean a physical attack. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit later. So how are we going to implement this policy? Where again, the, the nation views space assets as part of our infrastructure they are vital to our national interests, and we will defend those national interests, plus the, our allies' interests in space. So how will we implement this? First thing is space situational awareness. Uh, we would not tolerate in any other part of our military the lack of space situational awareness we have in space. Uh, I talked earlier about 20,000 items that we track in space, we catalog those things. They are fundamentally white dots in the night sky. Uh, we give them an identification number, but we really don't know what they are. Uh, what we have to do is get away from that mode of cataloging objects in space and get into the mode of what, what I call track custody, where just like we do in the air, uh, we know where any given airplane <coughs> took off from, we know which way it's headed. We know what altitude it's at. Typically, we also know who owns it, who the pilot is, and because they follow a flight plan. But even if they don't, FAA still sees it, uh, and also the Navy and the Air Force do this overseas in, in combat zones. Uh, so this track custody is critical to us. And how that would have to be implemented is that we put, we have enough sensors and enough uh, ability to uh, do space tracking that we can actually watch uh, not only a launch from anywhere in the world, but launch what watch what comes off that launch vehicle and then keep track of that information of the satellites and debris that come off that launch vehicle and, and continue that track until the death of that target, until that target is either uh, uh, no longer uh, uh, there, it re-enters the atmosphere, or until it's uh, derelict. <clears throat> so we have to know where that piece of that space object came from, what launch vehicle it came off of, when, who, who is talking to it, who is commanding, preferably who's listening to it also. So that is track custody. And we have that level of, of uh, uh, situational awareness in almost every other military domain that we operate in, we do not have it in space. That's the first step toward implementing uh, the president's policies. 
<clears throat> and there's declaratory policy also, another step. Current space policy states purposeful interference with space systems, including the supporting infrastructure, meaning the ground segments, will be considered an infringement upon a nation's rights. So again, strong words uh, about interference with, with space uh, uh, assets. Also, we have to move away from our reliance on a very small number of very highly capable uh, uh, systems in space. Uh, that, that, that concentrates our capability in a small number of targets. We've got to move away from that. We have to disperse our capabilities in space. Uh, and the policy talks about that. And when something does happen to our, uh, one of our assets, typically today we view it as an engineering problem. A battery failed or a solar array failed, propulsion system failed. And then we attack it from an engineering problem. We have to know whether or not it really was an engineering problem or did somebody actually interfere with our space asset. And if so, who did that? We have to be able to attribute that interference. Again, something we cannot do today, something that we are going to solve. So we have uh, policy statements that are strong enough to, to, uh, enable, to, to, to give us the uh, underpinnings of what we need to do uh, for space protection. Uh, but what are what's some of the implementations, actually? International partnerships, and again, the new policy talks about this. Space Posture Review talks about international pa partnerships. Uh, the thinking being that if somebody does interfere with a, with a, an a, with a partnership's assets in space, uh, then, the, then the entire partnership would respond. Uh, for instance, here Australia has bought uh, a sixth, uh, the United States bought the first five of these WGS satellites. Uh, these are fundamental, fundamentally uh, military versions of direct-to-home broadcast uh, TV. Uh, Australia bought a sixth spacecraft, and we're talking with other allied nations to add more to that constellation. The uh, advanced EHF uh, spacecraft, the first one's on orbit right now, uh, that was uh, also uh, co-funded with <laughs> allied participation. In the weather, uh, in the weather uh, side of our, in the weather mission for the United States, uh, we already rely on the European uh, low Earth orbit satellites uh, to give us the data for about one-third of our coverage of the Earth uh, for weather satellites. <clears throat> also, we're, again, a national policy to promote commonality between U.S. GPS satellites and uh, Europe's Galileo system. In fact, the first one of the GPS-3 spacecraft to be launched in 2013 or 14 will carry the Galileo signal, and it will transmit the Galileo signal. So your receiver in your hand or in your car uh, would then be able to listen to either the U.S. GPS constellation or the Galileo constellation. Uh, commercial space. What are we doing uh, today and how can we expand that with our reliance upon commercial space? Uh, the National Geospatial Agency uh, uh, spends $300 million a year on two U.S. Uh, uh, commercial companies that provide uh, space uh, ISR for them. They're also buying, uh, uh, not that much per year, but they're buying uh, radar images from Canada, Italy, Germany also. And so National Geospatial Agency is, is, uh, is using both commercial and international uh, uh, assets to do their job. And of course, uh, we lease uh, 500 to 600 million per year. The Department of Defense leases 500 to 600 million dollars a year worth of uh, commercial uh, SATCOM services, Iridium, uh, Global Star, uh, SES, Americom, Intelsat, and such. Also on commercial space, uh, a sensor to be launched uh, uh, middle of next year. Uh, it's an Air Force, a new Air Force missile warning sensor as an experiment uh, to be launched on uh, SES Americom satellite, 
uh, again, uh, middle of next year. This is another way that we can diversify our sensors, diversify our assets in space, uh, and make it harder for an adversary to interfere with our uh, military capabilities in space. Now, one last thing that the, both the posture review and the, uh, and the uh, space policy talk about is rapid reconstitution. If one of my assets dies, either from an engineering problem or a space weather problem, solar storm, or, or due to adversary action, uh, I probably can't get that 100% capability launched within a couple of weeks. And I can maybe get the 80% solution launched within a couple of weeks if I have the infrastructure. And that's something we call operational response uh, Where, on relatively short notice, uh, the U.S. can put together a uh, lesser capability but still uh, good enough to satisfy the world fighters immediate needs, uh, put together a capability that can respond rapidly to uh, a loss on order uh, so that we, we've got this reconstitution capability uh, to, uh, to augment uh, what uh, has been, uh, what was uh, damaged on orbit. <clears throat> so in summary, we've got a situation where we have ever-increasing reliance on space assets for both uh, commercial, civil, and U.S. military uh, capabilities. And our top priority is to maintain continuity of service to the warfighter and to the commercial world in this uh, congested and contested environment. And we've got um, uh, the policy underpinnings that enable us to do this and uh, dispersing our assets uh, amongst commercial and uh, uh, allied uh, uh, partners and rapid reconstitution through the Operational Responsive Space Program is what uh, will make us still deliver to the warfighter these, uh, these capabilities from space in this newly congested and contested environment. Okay, let me open it up to questions then. Yes, sir.
gives us a way to do it. Gives us a way to continue uh, providing services to the warfighter without uh, embracing the huge expenses. Yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, are there other countries that are willing to do these expenses? I mean, it seems like your presentation talks about like what our allies are doing, but it doesn't really mention what our enemies are doing. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we, 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 we pay the athletic director of national intelligence as part of this. Part of the DNI's job is to go find out. I need I that. that job. We'll find out not only what the China is doing, but what are their intentions. And that's the problem. Yeah, real answer is we don't find it. Yes, sir. Is there any <coughs> effort to kind of reinstate the sanctuary? Or is it just that's a bygone era? I'm afraid it's a bygone era. Again, we have uh, <coughs> you know, so many different kinds of players in space time. There was a collision in the readings that was uh, collided with a, a, a dead Russian. And so you have commercial entities. And these commercial entities are almost all uh, based in <coughs> Bermuda or Luxembourg. And so they are international commercial entities, transnational commercial entities. And so uh, the, the, the good old days of the bipolar world are gone. And part of those good old days was uh, we, we led each other to We've got too many different players with different priorities in space now that uh, you don't have that <clears throat> Now, this policy, I didn't talk about this, but this policy also takes the first step of marching down the path of rules of the road in space. Responsible actors, nations or transnational The U.S. is suggesting certain characteristics Things do consciousness to reduce as your satellites age, uh, move your satellites <coughs> either to deorbit them if they're in orbit or the movement is disposal for the higher altitude. So move your satellite out of the way uh, uh, when it does become a dead Move it out of the way so it's not interfering for the players. So this policy takes the first step towards that rule of the road. So it doesn't really return to the sanctuary, but it does suggest responsible players will act to this way. Put up. Yes, sir. Uh, the language in the, in the space policy, can you give me your impression on offensive space control and what the space policy says about potentially pursuing offensive space control? Yeah, it is not very verbose on that, as you would say. Uh, uh, but it does acknowledge that uh, we may have to do that. Uh, again, uh, sort of again, but nonetheless in compliance with the tools of the most responsible state uh, operators. Yes, sir. Uh, well, let me, let, me, let me touch on that a little bit. When we talk about offense, uh, let's say we wanted to respond to the time. Again, that's, that's another thing I didn't know. Just because something happens in space doesn't mean we have to respond to the state. Uh, if China did something bad to several of our satellites, we wouldn't necessarily go back and do the same thing to their satellites. Because if we created a lot more ingredients, we would have something more than the Chinese. So we might do something like that. Just like 100% terrorists. That would probably hurt them uh, more than space can do. So uh, this policy is very, very, uh, very vocal about the government has a full range of response to the projects that we need to So, uh, uh, so it, it gives us that kind of liberty to respond to the Yes, okay. I was going to ask you about with the, uh, so many things, in, for the lack of term, things in space 
if uh, it, this, this piece is up there in orbit and it uh, loses its uh, purpose, um, is it, I know there's a lot of room up there, but is it going to just continue to float forever? Depends on where it is. And, and, and depends on where it is. Right. Um, if it is, if it's in lower orbit, <coughs> yeah. I mean, that's probably uh, below a thousand kilometers an hour. Um, atmospheric drag will eventually bring it down. Even though it's a thousand kilometers up there, it's some uh, And that varies, you know, when there's a sunspot cycle, it's a little high, it is deeper, thicker, it responds to that sunspot activity. So things begin more quickly. So again, let's 
uh, and then State Department was there for work with allies, uh, were dominated with uh, bilateral. In space, we tend to be dominated with bilateral relationships. Us and Canada, us and Australia, uh, us and England. Uh, we're, we're getting, it's kind of strange, but the United States and European space so I've almost uh, uh, we're having a hard time getting NATO to learn how to sell shit. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Uh, I've talked to the National Security Council. I guess I have to hang out more here. <laughs> uh, so, but the dominant players are, uh, are, uh, are at, the, at the White House level, the National Security Council. So,
it's a pretty grim thing. What are you excited about in the technical or policy wise in the next few years? Oh, Well, the thing that excited me about all this was the realization that one of our answers could be is a rapid reconstitution, where, again, whether it's an engineering problem or whether it's an adversary attack, uh, you can uh, reconstitute a minimal capability on short notice, maybe in the and so to me, that, that's the exciting part of this. Uh, there's a huge amount of, uh, you know, another part of my huge amount of controversy right now about what the Dean State Department is for that. Uh, a lot of talk about going, relying on commercial folks to carry astronauts from the ground to the space station. Okay, yeah. But what's really important is. What are we going to do with people beyond the space Asteroids, moon to Mars, our moon, landing on Mars, coming back to Mars. Uh, those are the questions that we really should be addressing, and we're really not. We're all arguing about this. Something that's pretty mundane. This country doesn't produce nothing. Baby boomers at the time. Uh, anyone wants to change fields? You don't want. As baby boomers are retiring, and there's a concern, not just in aerospace, but in every field, that uh, there's not enough U.S. engineers coming to the colleges to replace the baby boomers. I say, well, maybe we don't need to replace them one for one. Maybe the new people coming in are a hell of a lot more capable than we were coming in. Probably they are. I know that at least the school right work that they are. So, uh, but uh, well, STEM education. Uh, if you're going to get somebody to march down the curriculum of uh, engineering and science, and that, they have to make that decision somewhere around fourth, fifth, sixth grade, because that's when that curriculum starts. And the things that excite the fourth, fifth, or sixth grade aren't uh, GPS satellites. They take that every time. That's like you know, turning on the water, water faucet at home. Uh, the GPS What excites them is the exploration science. Why does this, why does this spot on Jupiter uh, stay there, or not stay there? Uh, volcanoes and Iowa, uh, uh, methane lakes, Titan. There is a there is a almost 100 percent correlation between the exciting inspiration and the new people getting into the state. So that goes that's, that's that's one of the generation generations to put. Yeah, we've had ups and downs. Uh, and there's a direct correlation that, that the people get educators. So the uh, and so NASA's exploration program, both robotic engines, is a huge level on STEM education. And military needs those college graduates. It's just that again, the GPS constellation doesn't excite because it's like the hundred and old time in the wall. Of course it's there. I assume we still couldn't defend from China or 
the Russians. So where, where are you? Because my, my sense is just curious where we are. Yeah. From a pure technology perspective, yes. you know, kill vehicles and rockets, uh, divert propulsion, all that stuff. We have the uh, uh, technology necessary to do uh, missile defense. Can we do it against the determined offensive yeah, that's, that's a lot of numbers. And that's, that's, that's not a technology question, that's a lot of numbers. Well, I've done it in the past. Raw numbers were also a dollar figure here, I mean, but it was so much less expensive to produce the next offensive system compared to the next defensive ability to defend it, that the offense would not easily be able to so well. Yeah, are we still in that zone? Are we still in that world, or has anything changed technologically where the cost of defense is caught up with the cost of overwhelming the defense? Uh, I guess against uh, technological fears, like Russia. That's probably, that, that equation is probably down. Uh, but if you worry about North Korea and Iran, which we are, and the, uh, I think we've got uh, a huge advantage in that, in that particular thing because, uh, because it takes a lot of their very scarce resources tend to be in scientists and engineers long past and stuff to develop and feel their long range missiles. Uh, not just like Treasury kind of stuff, uh, but the other longer range stuff. Uh, <clears throat> so it takes a lot of their resources, high value resources to do that. And the uh, and but we've got again our technology at the peace part level that industry can build. Is uh, capable of defending the system. Uh, just a function of uh, how many. I think that I don't care how many uh, uh, interceptors we have deployed on that. Uh, and that's good enough to protect the team. Because uh, they're not going to feel about any kind of thing. They'll have a few handful. They're not going to have a thousand. So we can defend against, uh, uh, we can confidently defend against uh, small numbers of missiles coming from the land in the world. If I was Russia, I'd be worried about it. I never know if there was. Yes, sir. Um, what's the added value of sort of putting those weapons in the space? That's always my question. Versus you know, having them on the ground. Like, can we do everything we need to do up in the ground? Uh, so it's a taboo about space now, but if we ever decided to you know, want that, would it be added value? Well, the added value is it may be a little bit, if you wanted to do blue state intercept, intercept or blue state missile models, but you have to be pretty close. The trip to space is pretty close. Uh, I'm on over 120 miles away. I'm already, I'm already today using sensors to go to most of the things, sensors I don't have any weapons space. Uh, but if I wanted to do boost phase intercept, which is the high leverage, high value point intercepting missile, uh, you can see the vulnerable targets. Yeah. But if the best, if, if you wanted to do Global blue space intercept. But the good news is we don't have to do global because we don't worry about North Korea and Iran. So if we made conscious policy to worry about global space defending against this missile attacks. What else? Yes, sir. Well, I have one that's a little off topic, <coughs> and you're welcome to defer, but um, I think the FAA and NASA are both looking increasingly at passenger space travel mm -hmm. in the next decade. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if you had any comments about that or how the, the space policy took that into account or what ramifications. Well, I hope it's, I hope it's a test. But again, hope is not a good manager. Uh, 
That would be a, uh, that is the only new market for straight uh, If you talk about mass to order, we, we do what we do and there's not much of a projection, projection to change that. In fact, what's really happening is that, you know, so they're packing more and more capability on, on top of our satellites to get more both commercial and military. Flight is afraid of the revolution in space launch that occurred on the top of the rocket, not the bottom of the rocket. <coughs> so, but a new market, like uh, uh, tourism, space tourism, is the thing that will change. Now, there's several sub levels. Of and there's other levels in the back. But uh, the real proof of pudding will be when they kill the first customer. <laughs> and the lawyers are involved. And now, of course, they have all sorts of, uh, of uh, statements that they're trying to put it straight in. Uh, but uh, we're going to stand up in court. That's, that's the real question. So the, the future of that market will be determined in one of the several ways of building a customer. And they will, and the company will have abided by all the other Yes, sir. Now on the on the line, I'm really excited about the Google Enterprise and uh -huh. price and things like that. What do you think that has besides a market for the Okay, good. I want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you.